Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the Sunday morning, February 12th episode. That's episode 165, I believe, of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find our podcasts over at podcasts.strivingforeternity.org. I would definitely encourage you to go over there and take a look. There are a number of very, very wonderful podcasts over there. I would definitely encourage you to go over there and do some, do some checking out and do some listening. Uh, I also want to continue to remind you of the link that is at the bottom of the show notes. Um, It is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Give, Sin, Go campaign. Uh, We are working to rapidly pay off our mortgage so we can shift gears and commence establishment of a Christian classic education-based school, trying to offer an alternative in our community um, for parents and grandparents out there, an alternative to what's already there, um, something they, they feel like maybe they can more trust. So we're working to do that as well. So I would definitely encourage you to go ahead and click on the link and check it out. Um, it'll give you more description, a little bit better description than I've just given you. And then we'd ask three things of you. We'd ask you to pray for us. We'd ask you to prayerfully consider giving to us. And then we would ask you to pass the link along to other people so that they can go read about us and then do the same thing, pray for us and prayerfully consider giving and then pass it on to somebody else. Um, that's definitely where we're looking with what we want to do. Um, all right, so we want to go ahead and get into our reading bit being Sunday. I know you probably want to get through this relatively quickly so you can get ready. Honestly, I'm recording this the night before, but I'm heading towards bedtime and I'm working on a couple of messages for further in the week. So I really want to get this done so I can go ahead and do that as well. But we want to get our reading in. So let's go ahead. Um, we're going to open up with our first day morning prayer like we always do. It's the one called worship. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we commune with thee every day. But weekdays are worldly days, and secular concerns reduce heavenly impressions. We bless thee, therefore, for the day sacred to our souls, when we can wait upon thee and be refreshed. We thank thee for the institutions of religion, by use of which we draw near to thee and thou to us. We rejoice in another Lord's day, when we call off our minds from the cares of the world, and attend upon thee without distraction. Let our retirement be devout, our conversation edifying, our reading pious, our hearing profitable, that our souls may be quickened and elevated. We are going to the house of prayer. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. We are going to the house of praise. Awaken in us every grateful and cheerful emotion. We are going to the house of instruction. Give testimony to the word preached and glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May it enlighten the ignorant, awaken the careless, reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, comfort the feeble-minded, make ready a people for their Lord. Be a sanctuary to all who cannot come, forget not those who never come, and do thou bestow upon us benevolence towards our dependents, forgiveness towards our enemies, peaceableness towards our neighbors, openness towards our fellow Christians. Amen. 
All right. And our devotion for February 12th for the morning, the text for it is 2 Corinthians 1, 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolations also aboundeth by Christ. Well, sorry. There is a blessed proportion. The ruler of providence bears a pair of scales. In this side, he puts his people's trials, and in that he puts their consolations. When the scale of trial is nearly empty, you will always find the scale of consolation in nearly the same condition. And when the scale of trials is full, you will find the scale of consolation just as heavy. When the black clouds gather most, I'm sorry, when the black clouds gather most, the light is the more brightly revealed to us. When the night lowers and the tempest is coming on, the heavenly captain is always closest to his crew. It is a blessed thing that when we are most cast down, then it is that we are most lifted up by the consolations of the Spirit. One reason is, because trials make more room for consolation, great hearts can only be made by great troubles. The spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes more room for consolation. God comes into our hearts. He finds it full. He begins to break our comforts and to make it empty. Then there is more room for grace. The humbler a man lies, the more comfort he will always have, because he will be more fitted to receive it. Another reason why we are often most happy in our troubles is this. Then we have the closest dealings with God. When the barn is full, man can live without God. When the purse is bursting with gold, we try to do without so much prayer. But once take our gourds away, and we want our God. Once cleanse the idols out of the house. Then we are compelled to honor Jehovah. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. There is no cry so good as that which comes from the bottom of the mountains. No prayer half so hearty as that which comes up from the depths of the soul. Through deep trials and afflictions, hence they bring us to God, and we are happier for nearness to God. (sighs) Sorry. And we are happier, for nearness to God is happiness. Come, troubled believer, fret not over your heavy troubles, for they are the heralds of weighty mercies. All right. Now let's get into our reading. We're going to be starting in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, beginning of the chapter. Now Yahweh said to Moses, Carve out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be prepared by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourselves there to me on the top of the mountain. And no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he carved out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning, and went up to Mount Sinai, as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hands. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low towards the earth and worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own inheritance. Then God said, Behold, I am going to cut a covenant before all your people. I will do wondrous deeds 
which have not been created in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of Yahweh, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to do with you. Be sure to keep what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Beware lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars, and shatter their sacred pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, which I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. The first, sorry, the first offspring from every womb belongs to me, even of all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. And you shall redeem with the lamb the first offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest. And you shall celebrate the feast of weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. For I will dispossess nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before Yahweh your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, and the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover shall not be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your ground into the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have cut a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with Yahweh forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he, <sighs> Sorry. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it happened when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. With him, it's God. Then Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them everything that Yahweh had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Then Moses finished speaking with them and put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out, and then he would come out and speak to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would return the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. All right, Exodus 35, we're going to read to verse 9. Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that Yahweh has commanded you to do. Six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to Yahweh. 
Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your places of habitation on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution, contribution to Yahweh. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as a contribution to Yahweh. Gold, silver, and bronze, and blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and porpoise skins, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephod, for the bre- and for the breastpiece. All right. And now Matthew 27, verses 15 through 31. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had delivered him over. Now while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, (coughs) Sorry, and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil did he do? But they were crying out all the more saying, let him be crucified. Now, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. Then when the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garment back on him and led him away to crucify him. All right. Uh, Psalm 33 verses 12 through 22. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who forms the hearts of them all, he who understands of all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for salvation, nor does it provide escape to anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul is patient for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us as we wait for you. And Proverbs 9 verses 1 through 6. 
Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her cattle. She has mixed her wine. She has also prepared her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks a heart of wisdom, she says, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your simplicity, and live, and step into the way of understanding. All right. Well, that is our reading for the day. I hope our t- I thank you for spending this time with me, and I hope our time together has been edifying for you. Um, I definitely hope you have a great day. I hope you have a great time in, in worship this morning with the saints. Um, I, I would definitely continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And God willing, I'll see you this evening. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Uh, the one we're going to close with, as we usually do on a Sunday morning, is the Lord's Day morning prayer. Let's pray. O maker and upholder of all things, day and night are thine, they are also mine from thee. The night to rid me of the cares of the day, to refresh my weary body, to renew my natural strength, the day to summon me to new activities, to give me opportunity to glorify thee, to serve my generation, to acquire knowledge, holiness, eternal life. But one day above all days is made especially for thy honor and my improvement. The Sabbath reminds me of thy rest from creation of the resurrection of my Savior, of his entering into repose. Thy house is mine, but I am unworthy to meet thee there, and am unfit for spiritual service. When I enter it, I come before thee as a sinner, condemned by conscience and thy word. For I am still in the body and in the wilderness, ignorant, weak, in danger, and in need of thine aid, but encouraged by thy all-sufficient grace. Let me go to thy house with a lively hope of meeting thee, knowing that there thou wilt come to me and give me peace. My soul is drawn out to thee in longing desires, for thy presence in the sanctuary, at the table, where all are entertained on a feast of good things. Let me before the broken elements, emblems of thy dying love, cry to thee with broken heart for grace and forgiveness. I long for that blissful communion of thy people, in thy eternal house, in the perfect kingdom. These are they that follow the Lamb. May I be of their company. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have a great day. And, uh, Like I said, God willing, I will see you this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the uh, Sunday, February 12th episode, uh, that would be episode 165 of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Sorry about that. I didn't have all, both my headphones in there. Um, Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble podcast of the Christian podcast community. Uh, you can find our podcast over at podcasts.strivingforeternity.org. Um, I would definitely, again, as I've said before, I would encourage you to go over there and take a look. Um, there are some wonderful podcasts over there. Um, shoot, there was something else I wanted to say to you and I can't remember what it was. I went completely blank. Well, that that's, I guess I'm starting to show my age, huh? Um, okay. Oh, I did want to let you know. Um, I am looking at coming to a point in John where I'm going to stop and I'm going to do some reading, um, some reading from some Puritans. 
and then we will come back to the Gospel of John. I'm going to need some time to do do some more in-depth study and get some more messages prepared. I'm trying to do it on the fly, but at some point I'm probably going to have to do that. Uh, the book I want to start with is from Thomas Watson. It's called The Godly Man's Picture. Um, it doesn't necessarily have um, chapters in it because I was thinking about reading a chapter a night or something like that, but it doesn't really have chapters in it. It has segments in it, and the segments talk about the characteristics of the godly man. Now, of course, it means the godly man or the godly woman, but but again, um, I, I, I'm sorry that you can't go wrong with the Puritans, so we'll probably do that next Um it may happen within the next couple of weeks. I just want to let you know um, so you're aware that that may be upcoming. Um, and let's see, what else? I still can't remember what else I was going to tell you. So I guess we'll just get on with our, we're going to be continuing on in our study of John chapter 6. We're going to be moving on from the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, still, deal, still dealing with the same disciples and the same crowd, but we're moving on from there and we're heading towards um, Jesus's discourse about him being the bread of life. So that that's where we're heading. Interestingly enough, he fed them with bread and fishes and he's going to be talking about the bread of life, you know, and they're hunting for the bread that they can see and eat, but he's the bread of life, which is obviously more important. That's where we're heading with it. But let's go ahead and open up our segment. Um, wow, that's really bothering me that I can't remember. I was just thinking about it before we started the episode or this segment of the episode. Um, but let's go ahead. We're going to go ahead and open up this evening with the first day evening prayer. It's called the teacher. Let's pray. Oh God, we bless thee, our creator, preserver, benefactor, teacher, for opening to us the volume of nature, where we may read and consider thy works. Thou hast this day spread before us the fuller pages of revelation, and in them we see what thou wouldst have us do, what thou requirest of us, what thou hast done for us, what thou hast promised us, and what thou hast given us in Jesus. We pray thee for a conscious experience of his salvation, and our deliverance from sin, and our bearing his image, and our enjoying his presence, and our being upheld by his free spirit. Let us not live uncertain of what we are, or where we are going. Bear witness with our spirit that we are thy children, and enable each one to say, I know my Redeemer. Bless us with growing sense of this salvation. If already enlightened in Christ, may we see greater things. If quickened, may we have more abundant life. If renewed, let us go on from strength to strength. Give us closer abiding in Jesus, that we may bring forth more fruit. Have a deeper sense of our obligations to him, that we may surrender all, have a fuller joy, that we may serve him more completely. And may our faith work by love towards him who died, towards our fellow believers, towards our fellow men. Amen. All right. And now our evening devotion for February 12th from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. The text is John fourteen sixteen. He shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The great father revealed himself to believers of old before the coming of his son and was known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the God Almighty. Then Jesus came, and the ever-blessed Son, in his own proper person, was the delight of his people's eyes. At the time of the Redeemer's ascension, the Holy Spirit became the head of the present dispensation, and his power was gloriously manifested in and after Pentecost. He remains at this hour the present Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling in and with his people, quickening, guiding, and ruling in their midst. Is his presence recognized as it ought to be? We cannot control his working. 
He is most sovereign in all his operations. But are we sufficiently anxious to obtain his help, or sufficiently watchful, lest we provoke him to withdraw his aid? Without him we can do nothing, but by his almighty energy the most extraordinary results can be produced. Everything depends upon his manifesting or concealing his power. Do we always look up to him, both for our inner life and our outward service, with the respectful dependence which is fitting? Do we not too often run before his call and act independently of his aid? Of his aid? Let us humble ourselves this evening for past neglects, and now entreat the heavenly dew to rest upon us, the sacred oil to anoint us, the celestial flame to burn within us. The Holy Ghost is no temporary gift. He abides with the saints. We have but to seek him aright, and he will be found of us. He is jealous, but he is pitiful. If he leaves in anger, he returns in mercy. Condescending and tender, he does not weary of us, but awaits to be gracious still. Sin has been hammering my heart unto a hardness void of love. Let supplying grace to cross his art drop from above. All right. So I did remember what I was going to say. I don't know why I'm blanked on it, but I did want to say um, how grateful I am. Um, we here in the last day or so, um, we've crossed a thousand listens to the podcast, a thousand listens. Now, of course, that may sound like a decent number and, and I'm very appreciative for it. But the fact is I've now, this is the 165th episode. <laughs> so it's not necessarily a lot of it listens per episode. And again, I'm not doing it for listens so I can say, look, 20,000 people listen to this or, you know, whatever. It's not that it's about bringing the word of God and feeding God's sheep and hoping that this podcast can help the unsaved be ready for the work of the Holy Spirit towards salvation and for the saved to be, um, to be assisted in their walk of sanctification in the, in their, um, in what should be a holy walk and what should be a growing walk, a walk that grows more and more to resemble God, to resemble Christ, to be more holy and more pietous as we go along in, in a good sense. Um, sorry, I just realized I had not, <laughs> updated one of my screens here real quick. All right. Well, like I said, we're going to continue on. And so anyways, I want to say I'm grateful, very, very grateful, um, for those that have listened, um, definitely unworthy, but I'm very, very grateful for your time that you spend with me. All right. So like I said, we're going to be continuing on in our study of the gospel of John. Um, and we're moving on, like I said, beyond the feeding of the 5,000. So, what we're going to be working into, um, in this next section. And, and again, I, you know, I, I give credit where credit is due. Um, I've, I've studied in other commentaries. Sorry, needed some water and study notes and stuff like that. But I very much have appreciated, um, the titles of sections that John MacArthur has come up with in his commentary. So I'm using those. Um, they're not mine. I'm using those. It just, it, it epitomizes what the verses speak of at, you know, but others say the same kind of thing. So I'm going to use his. So this next section we're coming into following the feeding of the 5,000, we end up seeing the responses. We end up seeing two sets of responses. They're the responses of the true disciple and the f disciples and the false disciples. And then in each of those sections, we're going to see a supernatural sign, 
the supernatural sign, and then the response. First, the response by the true disciple, and then uh, again, the supernatural sign and the response of the false disciples. So what we're going to deal with this evening and tomorrow evening, God willing, is we're going to look at first the supernatural sign that it that will in, engender a response from the true disciples. And then over the next, over the couple of days after that, we'll be looking at the supernatural sign and then the response of the false disciples. So let's get started. So Jesus and his, and his disciples, we'd seen them, they crossed the Sea of Galilee and they had been followed by a large crowd. And we've seen that fickle crowd, how fickle they were, um, that they were, they were, they were chasing the healing. They were chasing the miracles. They were chasing the next best best thing they were doing though. What can he do for me? What do I get out of it? And then we've seen the faithlessness of the disciples that having seen the miracles he's done already, not, not even counting the healing he just did, but, uh, but again, the changing of the water into wine, which is the same kind of miracle he's about to do. He, he was about to do with the bread or with the bread and the fish to feed these folks. But we've seen him heal the son of, um, the, the, the nobleman's son, we've seen him heal the man who had been lame for 38 years, but they still couldn't see it. They, you know, um, when he asked Philip the question, Philip said, they're going, man, eight months worth of wages is not going to be enough for everybody even to get a little bit. And, you know, Andrew goes, well, we got this kid over here with, 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 you know, five loaves and two fish. And again, we talked about that. It was basically the equivalent of five Twinkies and two sardines. But he also goes, what is that to feed all these people? And like we talked about, th- these people were, were I, I know it's feeding the 5,000, it's 5,000 men. When you consider all the women and children that would have been attending as well, this is fifteen to 20,000 people. But were fed by the equivalent of five Twinkies and two sardines. And there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Again, more leftovers than they started with exponentially more leftovers than they even started with. And they fed 15 to 20,000 people till they were full, till they were full, all that they wanted until they were full. So how amazing was that? And finally we see the false coronation that the fickle crowd wanted to perform on Jesus to put someone into power that could provide for their every want and need. Again, um, it's like Dr. Sproul or Dr. Sproul is like RC Sproul talked about is it basically they wanted to put somebody in power that, that, that could put a chicken in every pot or as, as RC Sproul relates to these verses or people that want a loaf and a fish in every lunch, you know, basically, basically they're looking for welfare state. They want somebody to take care of them. They want somebody to take care of them. They, they don't want to, they don't want to have to continue, consider, continue striving in their lives. They want somebody to start giving to them. And and don't we see that in our day where nobody wants to work for it anymore. They want somebody else to take care of them. Well, that's what we see now in the face of all of that. He still does this amazing miracle and provides for their physical needs. So, like I said, as Jesus and his disciples leave this gathering, we're going to see the characteristics of true and false disciples over the next couple of evenings, and we're going to break them down into some pieces. So like I said, for the next two evenings, we're going to look at the response of the true disciples with tonight looking at the supernatural sign and tomorrow evening, God willing, we'll look at the response of the the response of these true disciples. So 
we're going to look at verses 16 through 19, John 6, 16 through 19 this evening. So let me go ahead and read that for you. Now, when evening came, I'm sorry, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they began to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were frightened. Okay. Those are our verses for the day. So this is the miracle. This is, this is the, uh, what I call it. This is the supernatural sign that we're going to deal with. So again, in John 16 and 17, we see the, in John 6 verses 16 and 17, we see the disciples go down to the shore and get into a boat and head back back towards Capernaum. And we need to know they're doing this reluctantly, okay? Matthew 14, 22, immediately he made the disciples. So this is after they try to, they try to grab him and make him king. He goes, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Mark 6, 45, and immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. Now there's, there's another Bethsaida um, that's on the western shore near Capernaum while he himself was sending the crowd away. So in both cases, he sends them off. Um, and, he, and, it, and it looks like he sends them off first and then disperses the crowd. Now, again, the crowd had gotten all riled up with the idea of making Jesus king. We talked about the nationalism around the Passover. And they're like, oh, boy, this is the guy. This is the guy, this is the guy that is going to conquer the Romans. It's going to kick the Romans to the curb and get them out of here. This is the guy that is going to put food in our pot, is going to put roofs over our head, is going to take all the good care of them. This is the guy. This must be the Messiah. And they're, they're not wrong, but they want him for the wrong reasons. But there's also a number of commentators point on the fact, because you got to understand the, the, where it says he made the disciples or Jesus made his disciples, both in Matthew and Mark there, the, the, the Greek behind that is pushing the idea of he coerced them. He, he forced them into leaving. They didn't want to leave. Okay. This was reluctant. Like I said, they reluctantly were leaving. They did not want to go. Um, and a lot of commentators comment on it. The, the reason he had to do that and the reason he sent them off and then dispersed the crowd was that these disciples are finally seeing Jesus get the accolades and honor they feel he deserves from man. Um, and of course, we saw in John 6.15, this is not what needs to happen, so Jesus prevents it. We, uh, John 6.15, which was just before our verse for today. So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Well, per the other gospels, and you know, you kind of synchronize between them, you know, basically he went, oh, this isn't going to happen. He sent his, um, he sent his disciples off and then he sent the crowd away, said, go, we're done. Um, he's preventing it. And these commentators seem to think, and I agree with them. He sends his disciples away to keep them from getting sucked into this, um, as Matthew Henry refers to it, an irregular zeal. This is not a normal zeal. This is a whooped up nationalistic kind of thing. Um, and again, like I, like I mentioned last night, you know, it, it would have made, um, and I, and I do still have memories of the bicentennial, our 200 year anniversary, our 200 year, um, birthday on July 4th, um, of that year and, and all the great national pride and everything else. 
and you got to realize, like I like I said last evening, that Passover national pride makes right. that look look like I said that 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 would be like for for our Fourth of July being a street performer, and the Jews' nationalistic pride around the Passover being a Broadway show. I mean, it was that much. It's that much of a difference. So they want to make him king. And he's like, no, no, no. And the disciples are going to get caught up into it. There's always been speculation. And I don't know if it's true. And it doesn't really stay in the say in the Bible. But there's always kind of been speculation that part of the reason Judas got so disillusioned and betrayed, well, one, because that was God's plan. But the other was that he expected Jesus to become this national hero and do this. And when D- Jesus didn't head that way, Judas got frustrated with him. Now, again, that is extra biblical. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I could see that happening. I mean, think of, think about Peter, you know, I mean, think about Peter when, when Jesus talks about that, he's going to be crucified and Jesus, and Peter's like, don't talk like that. And he get behind me, Satan, you know, he says, get behind me, Satan. So Satan, so, so commentators believing that Jesus is doing that to prevent these guys from getting spun up and, and joining in with the crowd is totally realistic. It totally fits the character that these disciples have shown. So he sends them away again. Now, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and after getting into the boat, they began to cross the sea in Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So basically when they head off into, into the, they head off into the sea across the sea of Galilee, this is somewhere between six and nine o'clock at night that they're heading off. Okay. So keep that in mind. So we hit verse 18 and the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Okay. It's really easy to read that and just blow right by that. The sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Um, yeah, let, let me explain a little bit to you now. Of course, I've, I've been blessed by the fact that I've got to go to, go to Israel I've got to be in Jerusalem when I was in the Navy. We pulled in there. Our submarine pulled in there. I got to spend a couple of weeks um, wandering around a couple of different places. And one of the tour things I went on was around the Sea of Galilee. I've been to Capernaum. I've been to Tiberias. Um, and I've been around the shore there. This is not a little bumpy or choppy boat ride. This is not getting out on, like like I live in Arizona. This is not getting out on an Arizona lake and it gets a little choppy because we got a little bit of wind up, maybe 10 miles an hour of wind or something like that. Um, that's in one of these lakes. We've got lakes around here um, that are that are created by damming, damming up rivers uh, and streams um, for water control and water provision and whatever else. So um, this is not that. Let me, let me give you a little bit of, a a little bit of, um, maybe meteorology I would call it. But anyways, let me talk to you about the geography of this area. The sea of Galilee is almost 700 feet below sea level and the hills that surround it rise to approximately 2000 feet above sea level. And the change in elevation from this 2000 feet above sea level to the 700 feet below sea level. And that's at the top of the lake is relatively sudden. I mean, it's not a cliff, but, but these heights drop relatively drastically. That's why I've talked about, um, when I was back talking about Jesus and his heading, heading from Judea to Galilee and crossing through Samaria. And he had made that 30 miles, um, in the first six hours of the day. No, it was 10 miles in the first six hours of the day. 
And I told you that, that was, I think it was 10 miles. And, and I told you that was 10 hard miles. It, yeah, it's 10 more hard miles because as much as, you know, I live out in Arizona and we got peaks that are, you know, 12, 14, 16,000 feet up from valleys that are around two, 3,000. And so we go, wow, big mountains. Yeah. But we're not sitting there hiking up and down through them. Israel, while it doesn't seem like that, if, if you look at it on an elevation map, it doesn't seem like that big a deal, but trying to walk up and down and up and down and up and down, it, it's relatively, the, the elevation changes a lot. So again, that elevation change from the hills around, particularly the hills to the west, down into the valley of the Sea of Galilee, and they, they actually call it something, and I don't remember what it was. Um, I think it's like the Jordan Cut or something like that, um, is an extremely sudden elevation change. Which means that when the wind comes off the Mediterranean Sea, packing that, packing that moisture off the Mediterranean Sea, those winds make that drop and they have a great tendency to spin up sudden, very, very intense storms, very intense storms, very high winds, lots and lots of waves, heavy waves. Um, and they come up quick because they pick up speed coming downhill. They're carrying all that moisture from the Mediterranean and they spin into these storms. This is what these disciples are heading into, and they're heading directly into the wind coming off the Mediterranean Sea. Um, we even see that, and um, I don't even remember what, where it is. Um, oh, Mark 6, 48 through 50. Um, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but it says, and seeing them straining the oars for the wind was against them. Um, again, the wind was coming straight into the face of them. Um, and they're, or, they're rowing at this point. Um, what do we see? Um and verse 19, then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, they're rowing at this point. They're making no headway with a sail in any way, shape, or form. I mean, they're going head on into the wind. There's no way that the sail's going to do it. They're having to row. Um, and it's got to be bad. That kind of wind coming down and coming head on to them, even as low as a boat can be, the boat's going to have enough freeboard basically um, – hull above the waterline, that the wind's going to be pushing it back against it. The wind's going to be generating waves and wave motion that is pushing against the boat, trying to push it back towards the eastern shore. So they're having to row against it, and you've got sheeting rain and storm, mass storm that they probably can barely see beyond the 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 area right around their own boat, okay? So verse 19. Then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Now, again, um, oh, well, let's do this. When they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, basically three or four miles. If you look in the NASB, it says three or four miles. So, so they haven't rowed far. And they're rowing themselves, like I said, directly into the wind. So the wind's pushing on them to prevent their travel. But the wind is also causing the sea to strive against them to slow them down as well. And they're making very little headway. They, they may actually be at some points just holding steady. No matter how much effort they're putting forward, they're not getting very far. By this point, by the time he comes around, um, uh, I don't think I have the verses. But basically what it says, this is like the fourth hour of the night or something like that, that, that it, uh, one of the verses says, or the second hour, oh, in the fourth watch of the night, um, Matthew 14, 24 through 26, so in 25 it says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. So Jesus came to them. Fourth watch, watch of the night is like between 3 and 6 a.m. 
So they've been out on that on, on that water anywhere from six to nine, six to nine or twelve hours out there rowing and have not made it yet. They should have made it easy by now, by then, with no storm. So that's what they're fighting against. But then they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to near to them. Again, this is the fifth miracle the Gospel of John records. This is the fifth of the eight he records. So Jesus, again, makes clear that he's the Christ, the Son of God, by violating the law of gravity here. He's walking on water. He should be sinking into that. So Mark 6, 48 through 50. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he was attending to pa- intending to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Matthew 14, 24 through 26. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, meaning it was away from the land, not close to Capernaum, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So again, they've been on the sea anywhere from six to 12 hours at this point when Jesus comes along. And the disciples were frightened. I mean, go figure, verse 19. And they were frightened. Of course they were terrified. Even with some of them being professional professional fishermen on this sea, the Sea of Galilee, they're in the middle of this storm. And believe me, this is a these are the kind of storms that sink ships. These are the kind of storms that sink ships, no matter how much how expert you were. And, and there's much documentation of that in that time period. And this figure comes walking out of the storm towards them. I would be afraid as well. Um, think of it this way. So, so sometimes here in Arizona, when, uh, particularly when we hit monsoon season, um, and, and part of it's because we can, you know, you can see off across the desert in some cases or the desert Southwest, cause we don't have dune desert here, but you can look out across that and you can see a wall of rain coming towards you. You can see it moving towards you. And then in some cases, if it's heavy enough, once it gets to you, all of a sudden you've got like no visibility whatsoever around you. Well, they're right in the middle of this. And instead of the rain, rain coming at you, blurring out and blotting out what you were just looking at, like you'd be looking at a house, all of a sudden you can't see the house. Well, instead of that, you've got this rain closed down tight around them. They're rowing like crazy. And here comes this figure walking out of this storm. And, and I mean, they're seeing him up close. He's come out of nowhere and he's walking up close. Of course they're freaking out. This guy's, this guy's doing a miracle. Shoot. Even people that knew who he was were, were made afraid by him doing miracles. Um, you got to think about the, the story of the Gadarene demoniac, um, man possessed by a group of demons. They were called legion because they were many. And the demons began to plead with this Matthew 8, 31 through 34. And the demons began to plead with him saying, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go and coming out, they went into the swine and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Now the herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. They were so afraid of him, they wanted to leave their region. And in one of the other gospels, and I forget which one it is, it talks about this guy 
They come out and they find this guy that has been possessed by these demons, has broken chains and everything else, sitting there properly clothed and being instructed by Jesus. And they still ask him to leave. They're so afraid. But but you want to even, even look at the disciples themselves, Luke 5, 4 through 8. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, um, Jesus had been sitting in Simon's boat teaching. This is before Jesus had called Simon to be a, a disciple. He said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we labored all night and caught nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Again, even that point, Peter is afraid of him. You know, Simon Peter is afraid of him. So it, it, it can't be surprising that these disciples are terrified by this figure that comes walking out of the rain. So we want to see that. What an amazing miracle this is and how terrified these guys are. These ones that we're going to see in their response are the true disciples, but we can't be surprised that they're afraid. But what I really kind of caught out of it, out of it is that I feel like we have to note they headed out across a stormy sea. And like I said, these kind of storms, storms were ship sinkers. They were widow makers. Um, and it's no joke. Um, I have fortunately not been out there, but I've, when we were in Israel, like I said, talked to people there that knew about them and have seen them even today. And, and it's horrific and it doesn't matter even with the newer boats we have today and stuff. It, it is scary for people that get out on the Sea of Galilee. It can be extremely scary. As small as that sea is, as small as that lake is, it's a lake, as small as it is, those storms are horrific. But in their hour of need, in their hour of concern, when they're having trouble making any headway at all, their rabbi came to them in their hour of need. Their savior came to them in their hour of need. Isn't that just like our Savior to come out of the storm right to our side and as we'll see tomorrow evening, bring us to our destination, bring us to the point of completion of what we're doing, bring us to the point of serving our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that what he does? I mean, to me, that's the amazing part of it. And fortunately, we're going to see it because he's, as he's done this, Oh, sorry about that. That was my laundry. We're going to see the amazingness and, and how awesome it is that this, these disciples respond exactly the way the true disciples would. And of course, in the next couple of evenings, God willing, we're going to see how the false disciples out of the crowd respond to the miracle. It's the same miracle, but with their perception of it, how they fail. Um, and we want to be like these true disciples. Um, and we have to know, I mean, that's the thing we see it here. Honestly, Jesus could have just walked around the shore to get to Capernaum or he could have walked right on by them. They'd have never seen him in the storm. Honestly, if he'd stayed far enough away from the boat, he'd have walked right by him. But instead he came to them. And as, like I said, we're going to see tomorrow night, he came to them and he brought them to shore safely to shore.
what an amazing God that is and how much hope and comfort we must take, but how much strength to bear us up to be those true disciples. All right, let's go ahead and close it in prayer. We're going to close with our, as we usually do with our Lord's Day evening prayer. This one's called Most Holy God, or this one's called, sorry, Lord's Day evening prayer, like I said. Let's pray. Most Holy God, may the close of an earthly Sabbath remind me that the last of them will one day end. Animate me with joy that in heaven praise will never cease, that adoration will continue forever, that no flesh will grow weary, no congregations disperse, no affections flag, no thoughts wander, no will droop, but all will be adoring love. Guard my mind from making ordinances my stay or trust, from hewing out broken cisterns, from resting on outward helps. Wing me through earthly forms to thy immediate presence. May my feeble prayers show me the emptiness and vanity of my sins. Deepen in me the conviction that my most fervent prayers and most lowly confessions need to be repented of. May my best services bring me nearer to the cross and prompt me to cry, None but Jesus. But by thy spirit give abiding life to the lessons of this day. May the seeds sown take deep root and yield a full harvest. Let all who see me take knowledge that I have been with thee, that thou hast, sorry, that thou hast taught me my need as a sinner, hast revealed a finished salvation to me, hast enriched me with all spiritual blessings, hast chosen me to show forth Jesus to others, hast helped me to dispel the mists of unbelief. O great creator, mighty protector, gracious preserver, thou dost load me with loving kindness, and hast made me thy purchased possession, and redeemed me from all guilt. I praise and bless thee for my Sabbath rest, my calm conscience, my peace of heart. Amen. All right. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Um, and God willing, I will see you tomorrow morning. Have a great night. God bless. Mm-hmm.